Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it, circle that, comes among us, circle this, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. They're using the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky charm. I am holding on to the everyone, and thanks for joining us today for our Bible study. Today, our scripture says, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. The elders rightly sensed they needed God's help to win the battle, but they were wrong in the way they sought help. Instead of humbly repenting and seeking God, they turned to methods that God never approved. They only cared if it worked. How often do we think of God as our genie in a bottle? Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's study. And we also see in the first century A.D., God brought who against Israel? He brought Rome. And in 70 A.D., he allowed his own people to be destroyed by a nation that was so pagan, their leader was identifying himself as being God himself. Filthy was the Roman Empire. And yet God would use them to chasten his people? It hardly, it doesn't seem fair, does it? It doesn't seem right at all. But God does these things. Why? Because he's not a respecter of persons. And he hates sin. He hates sin. Whether it's in those who have despised him or even those in his own people. Now thank God, you and I, have been saved by Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ. Does God pour out his judgment on us now, the church? Does he do that? We are chastened, aren't we? You can be chastened, but that does, that's not necessarily God's judgment. But when God has poured out his judgment upon his son once and for all, that's why you and I have such a wonderful relationship with the Lord based on the scriptures, because that's what the scriptures say. He paid the price. So he doesn't need to judge us any longer. And notice that the Philistines killed about 4,000 men. 4,000 men. And I wonder if their Jewish ancestors had done what God had told them to do, this problem wouldn't exist. Remember, when he brought them into the land, he told them to go into the land and destroy everything. Man, woman, child, everything. 
But they failed to do it. Even in Joshua's time, they went in to take portions of the land, and they didn't completely drive out the enemy. God told them to do it, and yet they didn't do it. And as a result of that, the people afterward, the Jews and the, you know, who'd grown up and the, the, the ancestors as they come along, they're having to deal with the problem that shouldn't have been. Does that make sense? They shouldn't have had to deal with the Philistines at this time because their, their ancestors, their, their forefathers, should have taken care of that problem. Do you see how just a little bit of disobedience, how it's just, it's, it's just like a cascade and it just goes on down to our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, our great-great-grandkids. Sometimes those things happen. And that's why sin is such a big deal. That's why we have to take uh, heed to ourselves and not allow these things to have dominion over us. So in verse 3 it says, And when the people had gone into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? You see the tone in that? Why has God defeated us before, today before the Philistines? Notice they blame God for their defeat. Was it God's fault that they were defeated, or was it their own fault? Let me suggest to you it was their own fault, because by this time they had gotten so far away from the Lord it wasn't God's fault. But isn't that true that, you know, God and the devil get blamed for a lot of things when it's usually our own fault. When we get into trouble, we blame it on God or we blame it on the devil. Remember the old phrase, the devil made me do it? Probably not. It's probably just you. Me and my own rebellion. I, you know, I, I don't even want to imagine what it would be like being tempted by the devil himself. We can be tempted by demons, and many of you have been, but can you imagine being tempted by the one who tempted Jesus in the desert? This one. Can you imagine being tempted by him? Oh my. You better fall on your face, and you better start praying. Right? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But notice, the heart of man always blames others before it will look at itself. And it started in the very beginning. You remember in Genesis, when Adam and Eve had sinned, and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says in verse 11 of chapter 3 of Genesis, that God says, Who told you that you were naked? Because God had spoken to Adam. Adam, where are you? And he goes, I was hiding because I was naked. And God says, Oh, who told you that you were naked? Something happened? Of course, God knows what happened. But he's drawing, he's drawing Adam out. God knew very well what happened, but he wanted Adam to confess what had happened. What happened, Adam? Well, the blame game begins. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave to me. See, this is marriage counseling right here. The woman you gave to me, Lord, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, can you see this? Hello, hello, hello. You know, you got the man. What did you do? Well, it's the woman you gave me. And he comes to the woman. What? Uh, and the God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, ah, oh, the serpent made me do it. The devil made me do it. So now you got Adam blaming her and she blaming the serpent. That's, that's exactly what we do today. We never take, we never own anything. Politicians very rarely own anything. They'll deny straight truth. It's a wonder how that happens. But the Lord certainly allowed this to happen because he saw that the hearts of the Israelites had 
gone far from him, and they broke his commandments. They were worthy of these things, of being chastened by God, of losing some battles because of their sin. What I think is interesting is, as we've been in Revelation, we're going to be coming upon the 16th chapter in a couple weeks, but one of the the third bold judgment, which is the, the last... Uh, series of bold judgments on the earth during the great tribulation period. The third one, it says, The angel poured out his bowl on the waters and the springs of water. They became his blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous. Notice this. The angels are saying this about people on the earth after God is beginning to judge really heavily in these last seven uh, judgments. And the angels say, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Do you see that? It is their just due. They had it coming. See, nobody likes to talk like that. But even the angels during the tribulation saying, Lord, they are What you've done is right and holy and righteous because they had what was coming to them. And do you think that that makes God happy? Do you think that that breaks his heart? You'd better believe it breaks his heart. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He would much rather have people live, obey and live. He'd much rather have that, right? And notice what it says. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. True and righteous are your judgments. And then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And notice, and men were scorched with great heat. And what did they do? They fell on their faces and gave glory to God and said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinful man. No, what does it say? It says that they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. And so the children of Israel, they had their just due. And notice what they said back in verse 3 in our text tonight. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of God from Shiloh to us, that when it went it, underline or over, circle the word it, because you're going to find them using the, these pronouns. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it, circle that, comes among us, circle this, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. They're using the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky charm, aren't they? Like a rabbit's foot. If you remember when you had rabbit's foot, guys, when you were little, maybe you had a rabbit's foot, a lucky rabbit's foot, you'd stick it in your pocket. Nothing's supposed to happen to you if you have your lucky rabbit's foot. There are many little things like that. But they kept it like a talisman against evil. As long as we have the Ark of the Covenant, boy, we're good. As long as we have that, then, then, then God is with us. But God would not allow the Ark of the Covenant or anything else to become a good luck charm for the children of Israel. Think of how the children of Israel's hearts would be and how much they would be deceived if God allowed them to win this battle. As they went into the battle with the Ark of the Covenant and God allowed them to win, can you imagine how deceived they would be? They would think the Ark of the Covenant is what did it. We brought it it to ourselves and, and, and now we're going to be delivered. And God wouldn't do it. They'd be putting their trust in the ark rather than the God of the ark. It's important for us to do. There should be nothing in the way. They were very superstitious. Superstition is a belief or practice resulting from ignorance, the fear of the unknown. It's trust in magic or chance or a false conception of causation. Do you know anybody who is superstitious? 
there's a lot of superstition. I remember when we were over in Bulgaria, the people over there, just like they are here, are very superstitious. But superstition is misplaced trust and devotion, and it exposes our unbelief and our lack of trust, our lack of faith in the Lord. And we see this kind of thing happening in the Word of God all over the place. And God didn't condone it at all, but we see it when the shadow of Peter passing by would save the sick. Was it Peter's shadow that really got the job done, or was it the faith in the person? God even God allowed that, but what, what was Peter some kind of special guy? Or men throwing Jonah overboard because he, he was a bad omen. It was a very superstitious thing. If, if this guy, if we're having this bad storm, let's throw him over and everything will be good. I'd like to read to you a, a short uh, devotion by William MacDonald. And he says, I've heard that one of the earliest versions of the English Bible translated this verse, and the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a lucky fellow. And that's the translation of the verse. Perhaps lucky at that time had a different meaning. At any rate, we are glad that later translators removed Joseph from the realm of luck. For the child of God, there is no luck. His life is controlled, guarded, planned by a loving Heavenly Father. Nothing happens to him by chance. And that being so, it is inconsistent for a Christian to wish good luck to someone else. Nor should he say, I lucked out. Such expressions are a practical denial of the truth of divine providence. The unbelieving world associates various things with good luck. Uh, with good luck, uh, a rabbit's foot, a wishbone, a four-leaf clover, a horseshoe, always with the points pointing upward so the luck won't spill out. Men cross their fingers and knock on wood as if those actions could affect events favorably or uh, avert misfortune. The same people associate other things with bad luck. A black cat, Friday the 13th, walking under a ladder, the number 13 on a room, or, the floor of, or, the fir, or, or, um, or on the floor of a building. It's sad to think of people living in bondage to such superstitions, a bondage that is needless and fruitless. And Isaiah It says, God threatened punishment for those in Judah who, it seems, were worshiping the God of chance. But you, who forsake the Lord, who forgot my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, we cannot be positive as to the particular sin involved, but it sounds suspiciously as if the people were bringing offerings to idols that were associated with luck and chance, and God hated it, he still does. Have you ever found yourself making those kind of comments? Knock on wood, you know, good luck. And we, we say them, and, I, and I, I say them sometimes because it's just something I grew up with. But I would encourage you, certainly not to be legalistic about this, okay? God is, you're not going to go to hell for saying good luck to somebody, right? You only go to hell if you, re, you reject Christ to your last day, right? But think about those kinds of things that are just built into your nature. And, and maybe pray about, Lord, help me to unlearn those things. Because of what I know the truth to be, it's not by chance. You know, everything is ordered by you. I don't need to say good luck. I don't say God bless you. You know, I don't need to say those things. I don't need to knock on wood. And you find yourself doing those things because of your old, you know, just your history, your old man, the stuff that you've done. I love what he goes on finally. He says, What confidence it gives us to know that we are not the helpless pawns of blind chance or of the rolling of cosmic dice or of lady luck. Everything in life is planned. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. 
For us, it is our Father, not fate, Christ, not chance, and love, not luck. I like that. But we're going to see that the Israelites were, they were, they had some superstition in them, still getting Egypt out of them. And certainly the Philistines, we'll see a little bit later, they were very much into, uh, they were very superstitious. And God was not going to be one-upped by them bringing the Ark of the Covenant and to have them put all their faith and trust in that rather than him. We mustn't allow anything to be held in reverence over God. No picture, no article, nothing, no physical thing in our life, no relic should ever get in the way of our true fellowship with God. Amen? But the ark did become an, an idol to them. And he wasn't obligated to give them victory just because the ark of God was with him. God knew what was going to happen to that ark. And do you think for a moment he was concerned that it might be destroyed by the Philistines? God was in control even when the Philistines thought they had control. God was in very much in control. And he can take care of what he needs. He's not lacking in resources. What does it say in Psalm 50? For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. It all belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And all they that dwell therein. That means everything, right? He doesn't, he's got resources that we can't possibly understand. But notice in verse 4, it says that the men, that the people sent to Shiloh... So here they are at Ebenezer, and they send back to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, these two corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. <laughs> and I find this very interesting. What an interesting picture this is. Here they've got this holy box, this Ark of the Covenant, this most holy of objects for the Jews, and yet it is overseen by two of the most corrupt individuals in Israel. You see the, the discrepancy there, the dichotomy that, that it gives here, the two different pictures, the most holy thing with the most corrupt. And you know what? I wonder, God would have rather had the Ark in enemy hands than the Ark to be in the hands of those that should have known better. These two men who should have known better. And this is why God would allow the Philistines to put the ark on a wooden cart. He wouldn't allow the Israelites to do it, but he would allow the Philistines in their ignorance to put that cart on a to put that ark on a wooden cart and have it driven by cows. But when Israel tried to do that, you remember when David tried to do that later on, it cost a man his life. And then David thought about it and then he looked into the scriptures and he's like, "You know what? We did this whole thing wrong." We were so, you know, thinking that maybe God had changed. You know, we heard about them bringing the ark on the cart with the cows. That's a great and convenient way to get things done, isn't it? Great and convenient. Is worship ever really convenient? Real worship is never convenient. Because when I'm really worshiping, there's a sacrifice involved, usually. It could be a sacrifice of praise. It could be a sacrifice of my finances. It could be a sacrifice of my time. A sacrifice of everything about me. There may be, um, you know, God is, um, is amazing. But he wouldn't allow them to get away with it. Notice verse 5. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Their worship was shallow but in, and they depended uh, upon the ark. And God could have delivered them. 
Couldn't he have delivered them without the ark? Did they really need to bring the ark? I think God would have much rather had sincere hearts there at the battle site, you know, there in Ebenezer, and for them to all to get on their knees and say, Lord, we have sinned a great sin. We have been playing games with you. Lord, forgive us. And he could have wiped out those guys without even them doing anything about it. He did it before. He'll do it in their history later on without them having to lift a finger. God could have done it. He didn't need the ark. They needed the ark. He didn't need it because their trust was misplaced in an object rather than the God of the object. So it says in verse 6, Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord, notice, the ark of Jehovah had come into the camp. And so the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Isn't it interesting that the enemies of God have a more of a reverence for God than the people of God? That's really what this is. They're like, Oh, this, this God is you know, terrible and awesome. And yet the children of Israel are like yawning and going, you know, and not repenting. There's no fear left in them anymore. You know, fear is a wonderful thing. A reverence. It is good to fear God. And that fear can mean two different things, and you know this. It can be a reverence, and it can be real fear, like you're scared. And I think both of those are good. I think we should fear God in the sense of reverencing him. Because if we don't do that, then we will fear him. We will fear him. If we don't know him, he is to be feared because there's a judge of all the earth. Now, he loves people. But I can either fall on the rock and be saved, or the rock can fall on me and I can be destroyed. And most of us, thank God, have fallen on the rock. We've been saved, right? So it's good. Notice in verse 8, Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods, lowercase g. Gods, really? Well, the the Philistines were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And so they they don't even know who this god is. But whoever he is, he demands respect because he's done amazing things. They've heard the stories. Actually, they're not stories. They've heard the history, right? They thought it was the gods... But it was God, Jehovah. Notice, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. And so now they're trying to have a pep rally to really encourage themselves. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Notice, and every man fled to his tent. There was a great slaughter. There fell 30,000 footmen foot soldiers. And so this is 30,000 more than the 4,000 that had died earlier. Now you have 34,000 Israelites that have been killed by this perennial enemy of Israel. These Philistines came from the island of Crete. They were a non-Semitic people. They were the enemy of Israel. Like I said, they came from Crete. And they came from Crete, and they went down into the Mediterranean, and they came down to Africa, they came down to Egypt. The Egyptians kicked them out of their land, and so they settled up on the coast where you and I know Israel to be, and that's where they stayed. These were non-Semitic people, and the reason they call them non-Semitic is because they didn't come from Shem. Remember Noah, and then Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Anyone who is Semitic, a Semitic people is a line of people that comes specifically from Shem. We know that to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, those are Semitic peoples. 
But the people like from Ham, those were the Egyptians and other Arabs, right? The, the Hamites, they called them, Hamitic. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.